Hello and welcome to the Potential Psychology Podcast. I'm your host, Ellen Jackson, and it's my mission to share the science of human behaviour in a practical, fun and inspiring way. In each podcast episode, I interview an expert from the fields of psychology, well-being, leadership, parenting or high performance. I pick their brain to uncover what they know about living well, what tips do they have for you and I, and I quiz them about how they apply their expertise in their own life. Join me as we discover simple, science-backed ways to live, learn, flourish, and fulfil your potential. Hello, and welcome back to the Potential Psychology Podcast. This is episode 50. It is our last episode for this season of the podcast. And as I mentioned in last week's episode, if you listened into that, it was a revisit of Martin Oglethorpe's discussion of digital parenting and e-safety and what we should and shouldn't fear in relation to our kids and screen time, because I know that is a big fear for a lot of people, myself included at times. And I'm continuing on with that theme a little today with a wonderful interview with research professor of psychology, Peter Gray. And I'll tell you a little bit more when I introduce Peter. But I did mention at the beginning of Martine's episode, as we started discussing this topic, that there has been a resurgence in interest in the mainstream media lately in video games and their impact on kids, and specifically the instances and issues surrounding video gaming as an addiction or disorder. And the World Health Organization in late May officially recognized gaming disorder as a mental health condition and added it to their international classification of diseases, which is their official diagnostic manual that they use. And this did get me thinking about video games and what we know about them. And I came across a fantastic, well, I thought it was fantastic. Anyway, I'll link it in the show notes. You can listen in and see what you think. But a blog post written by Peter Gray, who has a wealth of experience in kids and play and development. And he's also a scientist. So he looks at the research and the evidence around the topics relating to kids and play. And that has recently or relatively recently included video gaming as well. And in this blog post, he actually raised some really good questions about the impact that video gaming is having and how much of this is myth and how much of it is sensationalism and how much of this is true and how much of it is helpful. And what I came to understand pretty quickly by reading that, and I guess from some of the research that I've done, is that it's far more complex and nuanced than the sensationalist headlines would have us believe, that not only are video games problematic at times for some people, they're actually really beneficial also, and that's something that doesn't get discussed. There's a lot of individual variation in people and how they use video games and the effect that it has on them. So we can't necessarily just lump everybody together and everything together and say video games are bad for everyone. That's not kind of how humans work. Also, it's not very scientific to just lump everything into big buckets like that. So we know that there's huge difference in individuals, but there's also huge differences in video games themselves. And I don't play them, but my kids do and I watch them. And there's a vast difference between things like Minecraft that my seven-year-old plays and Fortnite that my 10-year-old plays. And then things that I've seen other 
grown-ups play and maybe some kids like Grand Theft Auto. There's many different ways to play as well. So this is all quite nuanced and complex when you start to get into it. Some games are social, some games are creative, some games are helping us to develop different pathways in our brain. So yeah, they do change your brain. That is something that we understand and Peter's going to explain more about that in this interview. But so does reading and so does playing sport. And in fact, any skill that we develop changes our brain. And if we don't have changes in our brains, then we're not learning things. So to say that video games change the brain and therefore it's bad, you know, that's probably not quite true. So I got really intrigued by this and I thought, who can I find who can really tell us a bit more about the research, give us a bit more on the evidence and explore some of these complexities with us. And that is what we're going to cover today. So let's listen in, shall we? I am delighted today to have with me research professor of psychology at Boston College, Peter Gray, who is speaking to us from Massachusetts in the United States. It's the very beginning of his Thursday. It's the very end of mine. And Peter is the author of both a widely used introductory psychology textbook, Psychology, which is now in its seventh edition, and Free to Learn, Why Unleashing the Instinct to Play Will Make Our Children Happier, More Self-Reliant and Better Students for Life. Peter writes a popular blog for Psychology Today entitled Freedom to Learn. He's frequently invited to speak to groups of educators, parents and researchers about children's needs for play. The psychological damage inflicted on children through our present methods of schooling and the ways in which children are designed by natural selection to control their own education. Peter is a founder and president of the Alliance for Self-Directed Education. He's also a founder and board member of Let Grow, which is dedicated to renewing children's freedom to play and explore outdoors in public spaces without continuous adult supervision, which is a topic close to my heart as well. There are many, many things that I'd love to talk to Peter about today, but we're narrowing it down to internet and video gaming and what the evidence tells us about the impact of these on our kids. Welcome, Peter. Glad to be here. I'm very excited to be able to speak to you today. I discovered you through a bit of internet research, which is my way, and a blog post that you wrote for your blog on psychology today called Sense and Nonsense About Video Game Addiction. And it really struck a chord with me. So I thought this would be a great opportunity to have a chat to you about, you know, what is the sense and perhaps the nonsense and maybe offer a different perspective on video games and what the evidence tells us about its effect on our kids. So I'm interested to know what got you interested in this particular topic? Yeah, I got interested beginning maybe seven or eight years ago. I give a lot of talks to groups, educators, parents, and so on uh, about the value of play. And as your intro noted, I'm an advocate of outdoor play and so on. So one would think I would be in the camp of being against video games <laughs> because they're indoors. <laughs> a lot of people think that this is one of the reasons kids are not outdoors as much as they used to be because they're sort of attracted to video games. So, you know, I would give these talks about the value of play and based on my research and other people's research and talk about the harm of the fact that young people today have much less opportunity for 
free play of all sorts, but especially free play outdoors away from adults than in the past. And I, I believe that they are suffering as a result of that in many, many ways and have written about this both in academic articles and for the popular press. So generally speaking, after I give my talk, the first question asked is, well, what about video games? <laughs> well, you know, to be honest, uh, when people began to ask that question, I knew very little about video games. I'm not a video game player myself. My son grew up playing video games, he's a big advocate of them. I don't see that it did him any great harm. Uh, but, you know, I'm a scientist, and so I don't go just on the basis of a case history. <laughs> so I, I began to say, well, you know, these people are asking me an honest question. I'm a scientist, a researcher. At minimum, I ought to be able to go and look at the research literature. What's, what does the research literature actually say? I prepped, before I did that, I did an internet search. I said, you know, internet search, what are the effects of video games on children? And I found all these terrible things that video games are supposedly do. I mean, practically every malady that children suffer from today, somebody's blaming video games on it. Obesity, social isolation, minds turning to mush, ADHD, addiction to the games, violence, and so on and so forth. All these, what I finally came to the conclusion are myths about the effects of video games. So so I'd read these blog posts, these popular articles, and so on. And what I would do is I'd say, well, are they actually citing any evidence? What's the evidence that they're citing? Is there research here supporting what they're claiming? You know, very often, as journalists do, what they cite is some case example. So, you know, there's, there's a case example of some school shooter who played video games. Well, do most school shooters play video games or do they play video games more than non-school shooters? Uh, practically all young males play video games these days. So <laughs> no surprise that those who are school shooters might play them too. You know, So that's the kind of thing I looked up. And basically what I found is once I started to look at the actual scientific literature, the results are far more positive than negative. <laughs> Which is a surprise. <laughs> we, we don't expect that. We don't expect that. And there's lots of research. It's not that there's a paucity of research. The real research is looking at both correlations and experimental studies have led me to think that, in a sense, video games are sort of the saving grace. We've pretty much prevented children from adventures outdoors, and that's a shame. That's terrible that we have. But at least they can have adventures in the virtual world. <laughs> We've more or less prevented children from getting together with other children out in the real world away from adults, but they can do so online, you know. <laughs> unless we take that computer away from them. And it's, it's so sad that parents are, many parents are now doing that. They're taking the computer away, they're limiting video play and so on. But basically what I found, I ended up, I think it was way back in 2012, I wrote my first blog post called The Many Benefits of Video Games, in which I sort of went through what all the myths are, and I showed what the data show, which are quite the reverse. So that was when I first got started. I've since written several other blog posts. I think I've done a total of five blog posts on video. And it's interesting that I present these talks, these sort of radical talks about how 
school is harmful for children and children should be out playing instead of school. And I don't get much flack from that. But when I talk about the positive effects of video games, everybody wants to argue with me. Which is, it's interesting, (laughs) isn't it? And I'm intrigued to take a little sidestep just for a moment around. So you you were talking about the fact that as a society, and and I don't think Australia is probably vastly different from the US in this, that we have kind of set up scenarios that prevent kids from playing outdoors and therefore now you know can we look at video games as a as an alternative or a substitute for what they get from that what is it I know this is a whole other topic that we could talk about but what what are the the things that we've done really to prevent kids from playing outdoors yeah well you know I think it is pretty much similar in Australia as in the United States my research is in the United States but I've I actually gave a couple of speaking tours in Australia and the people I talked to in Australia tell me it's pretty much the same thing there. Same thing in the UK, certainly, less so in some of the other European countries. But basically there are a number of, you know, one is increased weight of schooling. Schooling has just become a bigger deal than it used to be. So even elementary school kids have homework these days. This wasn't true when I was a kid. We didn't have homework. <laughs> you know, when we were off from school, we were off from school. We were, we played. <laughs> Some of us had chores, but even that we did in a playful way. And mm. we had lots of time. to play. We had much longer summer vacations. In the U.S., the summer vacation period was five weeks longer when I was a kid than it is today. Uh, the school day was an hour shorter than it is today. We had in elementary school when I was a kid, out of the six-hour school day, two hours were outside playing. We had a half-hour recess in the middle of the morning, in the middle of the afternoon, full hour at lunch. We were never in our seats for more than an hour at a time, you know. Compare that to kids today. I hear from parents who are in kindergarten kids and first-grade kids who have a total of 15 minutes recess Per day. Wow. I mean, this is child abuse, in my opinion. Mm. This is absolutely child abuse. So, we've done this uh, in schools. We've made school, we've convinced, we've sort of brainwashed parents into thinking that school is so important and those tests are so important and that that's more important than play. And as part of this, we've more or less brainwashed parents into believing that adult-directed school-like activities outside of school are more valuable than free play. Kids are just wasting their time if they're not in some kind of an adult-directed activity. So especially for middle-class families and above, you know, when the kids are not in school, they're driving the kids around to one activity after another, and that, of course, inhibits free play. So that's part of it. And then the other part of it is partly because of the media that, delights in telling us whenever some terrible thing happens to some child anywhere in the world, (laughs) we all believe that it's terribly dangerous out there for children, that if we let a child out of our sight, they will be snatched away by some child predator, you know, and we've developed the view that it is actually irresponsible parenting to not be monitoring your child all the time. You know, when I was a kid, I write about this in my book, Free to Learn. When I was five years old, I could go anywhere in town by myself. With my six-year-old friend, I could even ride my bike out of town, right? Because my six-year-old friend was mature and she would take (laughs) care of me, right? So this was the normal parenting back in the 1950s. 
Now people don't let 14-year-old kids <laughs> go off by themselves anymore. And in the United States, even if parents do, you know, there's more and more of a sense that if there's a child out there, loose, a loose child out there, you call the police or you, you know, it's, uh, this actually does happen. You know, it's just amazing the change that's occurred. This is, it's occurred gradually. And this isn't a sudden change, but it's occurred gradually since about the 1950s. We've been gradually taking children's freedom away. So I'd say those are the primary things. Now, there's a lot of other things. The fact that people don't know their neighbors as much as they used to. This is in part because both moms and dads work, and so nobody's home. And both dads and moms spend more time at work than in the past. So you don't see people, adults, puttering around out in the yard and where they get to know mm. one another, and therefore their kids, they know that the neighbor is not a child molester because this is somebody they've chatted with, right? So we don't know our neighbors. We have this incredible fear for the future. We fear two things about our children. One is that they'll be snatched away by a predator. And the secondly, that they'll grow up homeless if they don't in the, get into some fancy college. And we have become convinced that to get into some fancy college, they've got to be spending all their time building a resume. So, you know, they've got to do well in school. They've got to do all these extra formal extracurricular activities, so-called volunteer activities, which they're more or less forced into this is not really volunteer where they're doing it for their parents are volunteering them. So it'll go on to their college resume that they did this or that good deed kind of activity. So children are pushed into these kinds of things and they don't have time and opportunity to be children anymore. So that's the sad thing. The other thing I might say is that in terms of this idea that it's computers and video play that is the problem, that this is seducing children away from the outdoor, which so many people believe. There was actually a poll a number of years ago sponsored by IKEA in which they actually surveyed children, all of whom had computers because the survey was done by computer. And what they asked is, right now, if you had a choice between going out to play in the park with your friends or playing a your favorite computer game, which would you choose? And something like 85% said they would prefer to be out playing in the park with their friends, but that was not an option for them. Mm. So we want to blame computer games when we really need to be blaming ourselves. We have created a world in which children are simply not free to go out and play with other children as they so desire to do. And it's our responsibility or, or our fault, for want of a better term, as parents, as a collective who have created this? And what are the consequences for kids of this lack of opportunity to play freely, you know, outdoors, I suppose, to start with, and then we'll get onto the gaming side of things? Right. Well, this is something that I've written about. I have an article in the American Journal of Play called The Decline of Play and the Rise of Psychopathology in Children and Adolescents. And the basic finding is this, that over the last five or six decades, there has been a continuous, gradual, but overall huge decline in children's freedom to just go out and play and explore. Over this same period, over these same decades, there's been a gradual, but overall huge increase in all sorts of mental disorders of childhood. 
It's especially well documented in the United States for depression and anxiety. There are certain clinical questionnaires that assess depression and anxiety in uh, school-age children and in adolescents, which have been given in unchanged form to normative groups of children over the decades. And if you look at those questionnaires and you look at what would be the cutoff point for diagnosis by today's criteria of major depressive disorder or of a clinically significant anxiety disorder, what you find is that the rate of depression and anxiety at a clinically significant level is somewhere between five and 10 times today what it was in the 1950s. And this has been a continuous increase. The suicide rate among children, school-age children, is now six times what it was in the 1950s. So by various kinds of creativity has gone down. There's actually a valid assessment, believe it or not, for creativity that has been used for several decades, and at least since the mid-1980s, at all grade levels for school children, creativity has been going down at least since then. All of these are exactly what you would predict if you take play away from children and you put them more and more into adult-directed activities, and I might add adult-judged activities, which are by nature anxiety provoking, stressful. You know, school is becoming more and more stressful as we put more and more weight on testing. And even the out of school things, you know, if you're not just going out to play your own game, but you're on some kind of a formal team, there's the anxiety, will I make the team? Will I make the cut? Will we win our trophy? Is it, it's my fault if I mess up and we lose the game? I mean, all, you know, instead of just being out there for fun, you're out there under pressure circumstances. And then we wonder why the anxiety rate is so high among children. So we've taken away the opportunity for kids to play outdoors. And you're arguing that for kids, what gaming provides them is an opportunity to engage in that same level of play. And I have to say that, you know, I have a 10-year-old son who does play internet games and for him the draw card is the social connection he's a social sort of kid and when I've asked him you know what does he love about playing Fortnite, for example it's that he gets to spend time with his friends for the same reason he's enjoying other forms of online activity where he can actually chat to and engage with his friends so the gaming is potentially giving them opportunity to perhaps develop some of those skills or have those experiences that they're not able to get outdoors And yet, as parents, we're struggling with the gaming thing. You know, should we allow it? To what extent do we allow it? And we worry about the impacts, yeah? That's right. Now, so one of the questions is, does internet gaming have the same positive consequences as uh, outdoor free play? So I've looked at that question. I would never argue that this is a good total substitute for outdoor free play. You know, there's just uh, so many things you can do outdoors. There's so many forms of play. And of course, there's the physical exercise and the building of heart and lungs and movement and all of this that we're missing if we're only playing indoors. But I might add that everything that you say along that line that's negative about video gaming is probably more true for reading, let's say. And yet you rarely find parents who complain about their children's reading. And there are children who read all the time, you know, that always have been. And 
generally those kids are admired. They're not, no people don't say, oh, you know. <laughs> so we get all upset about the sedentary aspect of video play, but reading is actually more sedentary. We get upset. Some people think about video play, and, and initially it was a little socially isolated, but now the games, as you say, are are socially connecting. You're connecting online with other kids. And so video play is way more social than reading, <laughs> right? Mm. So on the face of, and video play is very creative. I mean, it's there's all kinds of opportunities for creativity. You're figuring out strategies. You're figuring out ways to beat the system. You're, you know, and, and the games are increasingly complex. I mean, they're intellectually difficult. They're, they're challenging. So all these things would seem to speak in favor. There was actually a study done by Columbia University two or three years ago. It was sort of a survey study of over 3,000 children between the age of 6 and 12. And they looked at how many hours a week each child was playing. They interviewed the parents to get this information, how many hours a week the child was playing uh, video games. And they independently of that, using both parents' ratings and teachers' ratings, they assessed the degree to which the children were regarded as socially competent, as emotionally mature, (laughs) as anxious or depressed, as doing well in school, interestingly. And so the result was, now they didn't break it down as far as I know further than this, but the main finding that was published was that those children who played five hours a week or more of video game play on every single measure were doing better (laughs) than the kids who were playing less than five hours a week. Now, they didn't look at what if you're playing 40 hours a week. They didn't look at that, which would be an interesting question to ask. But the fact of the matter is, if you're playing five hours or more, you are doing better than five hours less. The lesson from that to parents is if you're depriving your children of playing video games, you are putting them in the category where they're less likely to be socially competent, less likely to do well in school, less likely, and so on and so forth. So to me, it's not surprising. In this day and age, you could almost say that the kid who's not playing video games is maybe going to be kind of a social isolate. I mean, this is what kids talk about, especially boys at school, you know, and when they get together in physical reality, they're talking about the video games. So Mm. if you're not playing video games, you're not in that group, right? Mm. So you're going to be somewhat socially isolated. And I know that's something that parents say they struggle with is that the kids are telling me, everybody else is online, everybody else is allowed yeah. to play. You know, if I don't play, then I'm not going to have any friends. I'm not going to be, you know, accepted by my peers, all of that, which yeah. again, you know, then the parents are feeling this tension between for all of these reasons that right. are perpetuated perhaps by the media or, uh, you know, and, and not necessarily really explored in any depth from a scientific point of view. I feel like this is the wrong thing to allow them to do. And yet they're nagging me and, and it creates that tension and that conflict inside houses and homes. Peter, there was a headline a couple of years ago now that indicated, and I don't have the exact words in front of me, but it was along the lines of why your child's brain on Minecraft is like your child's brain on crack or something to that effect. You know, this is what your child's brain looks like on Minecraft. And it was trying to draw some parallels or it did claim some parallels between the effects of video games on a child's brain and the effects of illicit drugs on a child's brain, for example. 
What was wrong with that headline and that story? <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is an example of the sort of extreme panicky headline that is really unconscionable that both on the part of the author of that article, who is somebody who's written a book, who's a clinical psychologist, who written a book on the horrid effects of video <laughs> games, in his opinion, based on his clinical observations. And he's, so he's written, wrote this book. And the headline of the article, and now I don't know if this was his choice of the headline or the New York Post, which published the uh, article, but the headline was in big letters, digital heroin, digital heroin. So, you know, you let your child play video games, it's like letting them take heroin. (laughs) So, you know, I had read this kind of thing before people. So the primary evidence that people use when they want to make that claim comes from brain imaging studies. There's ways in which you can look at the person's brain while they're doing various things. And so you can examine the brain while they're playing video games. Now, this is not the technology for this is sort of overrated. You know, you have to do this many times and average it out, and there's a certain amount of fudging that can go into the results, you know, to be honest. I used to do brain research. So the, what the popular reader doesn't know is that this is not terribly precise technology, but let's say that, in fact, the results are valid from the research studies. And what the finding is that people point to when they make headlines like that is that there are certain areas of the brain, we could call them pleasure areas of the brain, right? These are the areas of the brain that get activated when you're feeling pleasure about something. And they are, not surprisingly, they're activated by drugs like heroin. They, drugs act on them artificially. They act by directly affecting those parts of the brain. But the normal function of those parts of the brain is that they mediate the pleasure of things that we do in life. That if we enjoy eating good food, if we enjoy sex, if we enjoy a video game, (laughs) those parts of the brain are going to be active. So lo and behold, somebody observed, okay, those pleasure centers get activated when kids are playing video games. Ah, well, those are the same parts that get activated when you take heroin. Well, they're not pointing out that they're also activated if you eat a bite of pizza, if you, you know, all these other things. And no way are they being stimulated in the same way that if you take heroin. With heroin, you're flooding that system artificially. You're producing, you know, somebody wrote, I don't know on what basis, but one researcher said there's at least 10 times the amount of release of dopamine in those parts of the brain, which is the transmitter released by those parts of the brain, in response to a drug that you're taking, as is occurs when you're playing a video game. I don't know how they estimated that, to be honest. It may just be a guess. But nevertheless, to say that because you see that part of the brain lighting up when you're playing video games is only to say the kid is enjoying video games. And if we were to deprive our children of everything that lights up that part of the brain, we would be saying our children are not allowed to do anything that's fun. (laughs) Yeah, and we're not allowed to hug them or do any of those things that would also activate those areas of the brain. This is just silly, and it's a way of scaring parents. And it effectively does scare parents. I just think it's unconscionable. And I, I think it's unconscionable on the part of the media, that they're not checking this, and it's even more unconscionable on the part of the researchers that should know better that they are not responding to these kinds of headlines. 
Mm. by telling the uh, the facts about it. This is no way, says that playing a video game is like taking heroin. (laughs) So we've established the fact that there's a a correlation between an activity and and what lights up in our brain is not causation. It doesn't mean that we're necessarily causing our children harm, that their brains are being caused any harm by the action of undertaking video games. What does your kid's brain look like when they're playing? You know, what are the effects that are taking place for kids? Do we know what they are and and do we know if they're bad or good or indifferent? Yeah, there actually have been quite a number of brain studies using this same technology that I just described. And there have been a couple of scientific reviews of the studies. There was one published in the journal called Frontiers of Neuroscience recently reviewed something like um, 120 studies, mostly correlational studies, but also some experimental studies. So what the general finding is, is it's not just those pleasure centers that light up when you're playing video games. It's other parts of the brain that would not get lit up from taking heroin, right? Parts of the brain that are involved in thinking, parts of the brain that are involved in perception, parts of the brain that are involved in making quick judgments. You know, everything that we do mentally, of course, involves the brain. I mean, every time you experience something, it's because the brain is doing something. And so, not surprisingly, what the research has shown is that if you're playing a video game that involves making quick judgments, those parts of the brain that are involved in making judgments are activated. If you're playing a video game that involves being able to hold a lot of information in memory, those parts of the brain that are involved in that. If you're playing a game that involves good spatial cognition, there's a part of the brain called the hippocampus, which is involved in spatial cognition. This gets activated. There are even studies showing that for people who play a lot of video games, certain parts of the brain that are involved in the kinds of activities that activate those parts of the brain actually grow. The brain is sort of like a muscle. You know, if you use it, the parts that you use grow, (laughs) physically Mm. grow. They become bigger to help you do better at that. So this has been known for a long time. So for many, many years ago, there was this one of the first studies was of London taxi drivers back before they had GPSs and they had to be able to hold in their mind the whole visual picture of all of London and how to get from any place to any place else in the most efficient way. They had to be able to pass tests showing that they could do this. Uh, it turns out that they had larger hippocampuses in their brain that was part of the brain that's involved in that. And there was evidence that it's not that people with large hippocampuses became taxi drivers, but that that part of the brain actually grew as a result of being a taxi driver. Well, not surprisingly, kids who play a lot of video games that involve spatial organization, that same part of the brain grows, and they become good at spatial organization in part because of the growth of that part of the brain, similarly with other parts of the brain. So there's a lot of research that shows that. Now, Unfortunately, the way that this gets interpreted by the popular press is, oh my gosh, playing video games messes up the brain, has, you know, muddles up the brain. It has an effect on the brain. So most people intuitively think, well, if it has an effect on the brain, it must be a harmful effect. (laughs) But in fact, this could only be interpreted as a positive effect. It's growing the brain. It's growing parts of the brain that are useful for doing certain kinds of tasks. 
The other thing is there's a lot of research by now. There are hundreds of studies that show various positive cognitive benefits of playing video games. I said I don't play video games, but you know some people are recommending that by the time you reach my age, it'd be a good idea to start playing video games to preserve that memory ability as you grow older, to preserve your ability to make judgments and so on. There's good evidence that it does help forestall the declining <laughs> effects of old age on, on brain power. But there's a lot of studies that show that various kinds of cognitive tests, the same kinds of, of tests that you would find on IQ tests, are improved by playing video games. And they're improved in a kind of long-term way. So it's not just that you're better at the very specific thing that you're doing on the video game. You're better in general on spatial cognition or in general about holding a lot of information in your mind. One of the initial studies was one that simply a correlation. The finding was that people who play a lot of video games on average have higher IQs than people who don't play video games so much. That was the initial observation. And then is this just a correlation? You know, maybe people with high IQs are drawn to video games. You know, they're intellectually challenging and so you're drawn to it. And people who have lower IQs find it frustrating to play the game so they don't play it. But another possibility, probably both of these are true, another possibility is that playing video games actually builds IQ. So they've done now many experimental studies where you take young people, oftentimes these are college students, and most often they're women because it's hard to find male college students who don't already play video games. I haven't already been doing it for years. Okay. <laughs> so you find young women who don't play video games, you assign them, some of them, to play a certain video game a certain number of hours a week, whether they want to or not. You've got to play this video game, right, if you're in this experiment. Then they test them before and after, and they have a control group who's doing something else. And lo and behold, on various cognitive tasks, these people now do better as a result of playing the video game. Those in the control condition are not doing better. And it lasts. Even if they don't continue to play the video game, several weeks later, they're tested again, and they're still doing well on that cognitive test, presumably because that part of the brain developed in a way that is long-lasting and continuing to have effect. The initial study, which was kind of an interesting one, actually many years ago, was college women. There, there's one kind of IQ-like test, it's the only one I know of, in which men and boys on average do better than women and girls. And it's a test of spatial cognition. You, you may have seen these tests. You you rotate objects in your the mind. The red-white blocks. Yeah. I, <laughs> yep. I, I, although I'm a male, I do terribly on these things, right? <laughs> and I have a sister who does, who did it <laughs> exceptionally well when I sort of grew up as a, a trainee psychologist, you know, having to test my family and friends on, on yeah. these sorts of IQ tests. And I did test my sister who is a graphic designer. So I think yeah. there's clearly something in there, but, and she nailed that test. She did well on it. So in general, males do better than females on this test. So somebody did an experiment in which they said, well, what if we have female college students who don't play video games play this? It was actually just a kind of worse game for women to play a first-person shooter game, you know, <laughs> but it does involve spatial organization. You got to be able to quickly locate where you're going to do the shooting. And lo and behold, so initially these young women on average scored lower than the average score for men at the same university. Half the women in the video game condition, half were in another condition. 
tested them afterwards, and those who were in the video game condition now scored equivalently to the men at the college, and those in the other condition didn't. So that was one of the first studies. So here was a sex difference in spatial cognition that some people believe is the result of biology of, you know, the argument is that men were hunters and they had to keep track of space and women were around camp and they had to be able to keep track of details, but not spatial organization so much. And so this is an inherent difference. But these researchers said, well, maybe this is not an inherent difference. It's maybe a difference due to the fact that boys tend to do different kinds of things from girls when they're growing up. And so maybe those parts of the brain grow. And one of the things in this day and age that boys were, at least at that time, were doing more than girls was playing video games. <laughs> and so so let's do this study. And lo and behold, it came out the way they predicted. Yeah. So, Peter, this begs the question, if we have increasing evidence that there are benefits, certainly in terms of, you know, some cognition benefits, skill development benefits, whatever the flow-on effects might be, that video games are actually helping to enhance these things. And there isn't really as much evidence as perhaps we thought or as people might expect Mm. that there is harm being done by video games, at least across the board. You know, we can't say that's the case probably for everybody, but across the board. Right. Why are we so terrified of them? Yeah, you, you know, this is not new. I mean, I think probably throughout history, at least throughout modern history, whenever there's a new technology, the older generation fears it <laughs> and the younger generation gravitates to it. So I've read that when the printing press was developed and especially when it became possible to print inexpensive novels, <laughs> you know, that the older generation thought this is just going to be the end of the world because now the young people are going to be reading these novels. Women are going to be reading romance novels. Morals will be corrupted. <laughs> you know that. You know when I was a kid, it was television had come around, and there were people who were feared that all oh, the radiation from television was going to ruin the brain, and sitting there watching television was going to be terribly harmful for people. Uh, There were also, around that time, there were these superhero comics that had a lot of supposed violence in them, and this was going to make young people grow up violence. There's just always been, whatever comes around, the kids gravitate to the new whatever the new music is. Oh, gosh, this is, you know, (laughs) this has always been true. I read someplace that back in Greek and Roman times, People like Plato were complaining about the corrupting effect of poetry on young children's minds, you know. So, yeah. and also, though, I think that so parents see, and, and in a way, I'm sympathetic with this. So, parents see their young child spending hours a day, maybe sitting in front of that screen, and it looks like they're doing nothing, right? I mean, what are they doing? And what are, you know, this doesn't. This isn't what I did as a kid, and it's kind of understandable that you would get worried about that. So I think that you don't really know what's going on with the child. You don't know what's going on in their mind. The other thing I hear from parents all the time, or I shouldn't say all the time, but quite often is, so some parent will say, what I see as I watch my child play this video game is I see him sometimes getting angry. And this can't be healthy that he's getting angry. And 
you know, I think one of the sad things about video play is because it's indoors, parents can watch it. <laughs> if the kid is playing outdoors, the kid also gets angry, right? Getting angry is part of play. It's part of your learning how to deal with anger. You're getting, you're putting yourself in situations where you get, you get angry at your playmates. You, you engage, you get bullied a little bit and you bully and you learn how to deal with that because there's no adults around to watch you. But now we've got adults around watching you all the time, judging your reactions, getting worried if you're showing emotion, for God's sake, you know? And so I hear of parents saying, I know that this video playing is not good for my child because I see my child getting angry while doing it. The kid wants to keep playing it, but I know that it's not good for my child. So that's part of the problem. And then, of course, you know, once this gets into the you know, the, the popular press loves to frighten people. <laughs> you know, that's why we don't let our children outdoors because their popular press is frightening people about how dangerous the outdoors is. If it isn't child predators, it's the rays of the sun are giving us skin cancer. The, in, I don't know if you've got them in Australia, but we have ticks giving Lyme disease in the United States. We've got, you know, there's all these dangers, of course, all of which are easily handled. You know, you can just put on sunscreen. <laughs> you can do tick checks. You can, but they get blown up by the press, and then parents become frightened of them, and they don't. They think that it would be negligent for me to allow my child to be outdoors playing, and then this becomes part of the social milieu. I mean, uh, everybody believes this, and so therefore you're not acting in a normative manner if you don't protect your child in these ways. So the same thing is happening with video play. The popular press, they probably get many more readers, you know, if they use a headline about digital heroin than they do if they use the headline that playing video games increases IQ. <laughs> you know, they, No one wants to read that. <laughs> nobody wants to read that, right? <laughs> or it's just like if they had a headline that says, Five million children went out to play today and they came back in happy. <laughs> <laughs> That's not news. <laughs> Versus a child went out to play today and got snatched away by somebody. Which one will draw the bigger readers? So we hear all these scare headlines. And once you have these images in your head, no matter how good you are about understanding probability, you know, you, I can explain to people, yes, it is true that there is some tiny, tiny chance that your child will be snatched away if your child is out there. There's also a tiny, tiny chance of being struck by lightning. There's a tiny, tiny chance. All of these things can happen, but the chances are so tiny and everything you do involves some kind of risk. But yet what happens is if you've got this image in your head of your child being snatched away by a child predator, it's hard to get that image out of your head. No matter how many statistics you hear about it, we tend not, not to be natural statisticians. We tend to be people who, by nature, we go on the basis of personal experiences, and then this becomes kind of a personal experience. You've heard about this story. It's in your head, and now how could you allow your child out? Similar thing. So you hear some story about some young man in Indonesia who played a video game 
three weeks straight and then died, right? Yeah. I mean, so you hear that story, a terrible story. And it apparently truly happened. But, you know, this is one person out of millions and millions of people who play video games, right? Mm. And there, there are crazy people playing video games just as there's crazy people not playing video games, right? Mm. So you hear the story like this and you think, well, my gosh, how can I justify letting my child play video games if this could possibly happen to him? He could become addicted and not stop to eat and drink and die as a result, right? So. And I'm going to ask you in a moment about the, the addiction side of things, but I think that is one thing that, you know, both in that situation of the outdoor play but also with the video game play is that there's an opportunity cost of being fearful about these things and restricting activity, isn't there? It's not just that we get scared about what might happen and kind of lose perspective on, you know, how likely that is. It's also that if we restrict our kids from engaging in these activities, certainly the outdoor play and increasingly from the evidence that you've discussed here, you know, perhaps also in relation to video games, that if we don't give our kids the opportunity to do that, that they are actually missing out on some developmental opportunities that they really have the right to have. Right. If parents would recognize, you know, they're, if you deprive your child the opportunity to develop what, I, what researchers call an internal locus of control, the sense of being in control of my own life, I can decide things, I can make good judgments. This is an extremely important thing for people to develop. If you don't develop that, you're at much greater risk as you go along for psychological depression, for anxiety disorders, and for suicide. So if parents could think of it this way, if I let my child do this or that, there's a slight chance that something bad will happen. (laughs) There's also actually a bigger chance that something bad will happen if I deprive my child from the opportunity to make his own judgments, to learn how to handle himself in these kinds of situations. There's actually a bigger chance that something bad will happen to him. And it's something down the road, something that is not so easily pinpointed to some specific occurrence. But their data is now overwhelming that children who are deprived of the opportunities to make their own judgments, to control aspects of their own life, are more likely to suffer psychologically and more likely to commit suicide later on. And suicide is becoming a bigger and bigger problem, believe it or not, among school-aged children, let alone Mm. among young adults. Mm. So the more we restrict kids, the more we set really rigid rules and guidelines and tell them what they can and can't do and when they can and can't do it, the less opportunity they have to develop that internal locus of control. Is that right? That's correct. Peter, I want to ask you about the internet gaming disorder, which is one phrase, or video gaming disorder or video game addiction. Um, I know that this has been a topic in the press recently because the World Health Organization have declared internet, oh, I've forgotten what they call it, video gaming or internet gaming as a disorder in their latest kind of decision around classifications of disorders. And I know this has been something that has been discussed within the American Psychiatric Association, right. so with regard to the DSM and diagnosis. What are the concerns about this? Because I know this is something you've written about in terms of is this really a diagnosable thing and should it be a diagnosable thing? And what are the issues? 
Yeah, that's a very good question. Now, first of all, let me say, you know, we, we use this word addiction for a lot of people almost use the word addiction in the popular conversation, sometimes in a positive way. I'm addicted to my work. <laughs> or people use addicted to refer to almost anything they like. I'm addicted to chocolate. I'm addicted to this or that. I meaning I like it, right? <laughs> and, I, yep. and I do a lot of it. And maybe I do more than I ought to do of it, right? Maybe I wouldn't, maybe I shouldn't eat so much chocolate. I think it's not helpful to use the word addiction here because it confounds things. Addiction has a very clear meaning when we're talking about alcohol addiction or drug addiction. I think it's even justifiable to talk about gambling addiction because I think something is an addiction where it's a compulsion that you cannot apparently control. You want to stop doing this. You desperately want to stop doing it. And it is creating clear harm to you and your loved ones. So if you're addicted to alcohol, you're addicted to an opiate, you're addicted to gambling and you're gambling away, you're stealing to gamble and you can't stop gambling. Those are serious problems that need to be diagnosed, that need psychological treatment. But to be addicted to a hobby, <laughs> right, is this make sense to call it addiction? Now, I do believe that there certainly are some people, adults as well as children, and maybe even more adults than children, who are involved with internet activity, including video games, more than is good for them. <laughs> and even they know it's not good for them. Even they know, and yet they're doing more of it. And it may be tempted to call that addiction. It may even be justifiable to call it addiction. But is there a reasonable way to diagnose it, to distinguish between? It's not just you're doing a lot of it, because there are a lot of people who do a lot of it who are professionals at it or who are really, you know, they're getting a lot out of it and they're doing a lot of it. But I'm talking about people. There are people who play video games and the video games themselves are not satisfying their life needs. And they are using video games as a way of avoiding what really is their life needs. So there are people who are unhappy and who are playing video games. And I would say that they're playing video games as an escape from other aspects of their life. And that requires psychological help, I believe. These are people who need psychological help not by taking the video game away, because then they've got nothing, right? <laughs> but by trying to help them figure out why is it that you're not doing the other things that you know you want to do? What is in the way? What's blocking you? Are you being bullied at school and don't have any friends? Are you unhappy with your work if it's an adult? Are you? And there's, there's actually research studies showing that the people who are most likely to be classified as addicted because they are unhappy, they want to stop doing it, but they can't seem to do it, are largely people for whom something else is missing in their life. So I think that generally speaking, if it's children we're talking about and the child is spending hours and hours a day playing video games and not doing anything else and is not a happy child, <laughs> then I would say that child needs some help, not by closing down the menu still further, but by opening up the menu. What else in life is missing for this child and how do we help provide that? That's what I think we need to do. The problem with diagnosing video 
game addiction is it yeah, let me in fact because i thought you might ask this question i actually listed what are the nine diagnostic criteria that the apa at least is proposing as their basis for diagnosing so they've listed nine characteristics and if you have any five of these characteristics then that means you're addicted to video games i want to read off five of the characteristics and I would argue that by that definition, when I was 11 years old, I was addicted to fishing. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> I was absolutely addicted to fishing. I would have a mental disorder, fishing disorder, right? Fishing addiction. I was really into fishing when I was 11 years old. So the first one is preoccupation. Spends lots of time thinking about games, even when not playing them. Believe me, I spent lots of times thinking about fishing when I wasn't fishing. Fishing was my life when I was then, right? Uh, fortunately, nobody thought it was a terrible thing, but uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> tolerance, okay, tolerance it needs to play more or play more powerful games to get the same excitement as before. Now think about this, anything that you do that's challenging, you need to keep making it more challenging or it's no fun, right? So if I'm fishing and initially I'm having fun just fishing for perch, they become too easy. Now I need something more challenging. I have to start fishing for trout, which are harder to catch. I've moved up. I've developed tolerance. It's no longer fun just to catch perch. I now have to do this. Similarly with video games, I've been playing this simple video game I'm now good at this. I've, I've developed tolerance for it. This is no fun anymore. So I go to a more complex game. I need a more complex game. In order. So that gets you a score for tolerance. So now I've, we've racked up two scores for video game addiction. All right. Give up other activities. Okay. So time is limited. Anything you do means that you've got to do so less of something else. <laughs> So the fact that I did a lot of fishing during my fishing years, it means I played less baseball. I didn't spend as much time flying kites. To be honest, I sometimes took off from school to go fishing. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, in those days, that wasn't regarded as a crime. As, it was a crime, but people let it go. You know? yeah. So you can't do anything without giving up something else to do it. So of course you give up other activities to do So now we've got three scores for video game addiction. All right, now here's one that sounds awful. Deceive, lie about how much he or she games. Well, now even with fishing, which was not regarded with a, in a really negative light for kids when I was a kid, there were times when I lied about fishing, you know, where I, I lied about the fact that I went fishing instead of going to school one or two days. You know, I, I lied about it, right? But suppose you're, in this world that we are today, where video games are regarded as a negative thing. You're not supposed to be playing video games. But I'm playing video games. There's a pretty strong temptation for me to lie about it, to say, actually oh, encourages it, doesn't it? Yeah, I know. I'm not playing video games. Or my mom goes away for the day and she tells me to promise not to play video games and say, okay, I won't play video games. And then you go ahead and play it. So this is deception, but I would say it's deception because we're in an environment where if you're going to do this thing, you almost have to deceive people about it because people don't want you to do it, right? Mm. So, so, deception, so now we've got four of the five. And then the fifth one here 
is escape mood, plays games to reduce anxiety or stress. Now, isn't it true that at least to some degree, all of us do things that we like to do to reduce anxiety or stress? You know, you come home from work, you're anxious, you're stressed about it. Whatever it is you like to do, you do it and takes your mind off the stress and you do it. So there are a lot of kids who I know who come home from school, they're really anxious and stressed, they're upset about school, so they play video games partly to reduce the stress of school. So here we have enough characteristics to say this person is addicted to video games. And yet every one of these characteristics is perfectly understandable for anybody who likes to play video games in today's world. So I just think it's really a kind of a a judgment call whether you're going to diagnose somebody. To what degree do they have these things? Partly depends on their honesty and how they answer the questions when they're during the diagnostic period. But a person I know who who's a psychotherapist who, among other things, treats people who believe they're playing video games more than they should be, and who find that they're so. He, one of the things that he says when he tells clients, he said let's not call it addiction. That makes it sound pathological. This is not pathological. He also goes through and he tells them, so somebody will come in and he say, they'll say, well, I, I'm a lazy bum. All I do is play video games. And so this psychotherapist plays video games himself. And he says, so tell me what game you play. And they'll tell him the game and he'll say, well, what level are you at? And he'll say, well, that, well, that's a tough game. <laughs> you can't really be a lazy bum. You know, that <laughs> takes a lot of work to do that bit of reframing. So let's reframe this here. And then he, he says, instead of talking about addiction, let's talk about it as something that's pretty normal, something that we all have. Let's talk about it as a time management problem. <laughs> so let's put it back in the realm of normality. All of us have time management problems. All of us have difficulty disciplining ourselves to do some of the things that we know we ought to be doing and not spend so much time doing some of those things that we really like to do. And so how do we budget our time? How do we enforce this? And so he reframes it in that kind of way. And, and I think that's very healthy, that I think if we recognize that some kids, as well as some adults, are playing video games more than, they, more than is good for them, and they know it's more than is good for them, how might we help them reframe this and think about it and set limits for themselves where they understand and they're they're determining the limits themselves and how much to limit it rather than than we are so they've still got an internal locus of control about doing this and we're not sort of pathologizing it that's the way we should be helping people and calling it video game disorder or internet gaming disorder is not helpful mm. for that peter so many interesting ideas there. I think so much information that will hopefully help parents to perhaps think differently about their child's internet gaming or video gaming or screen time use. I think we've probably only touched the surface of a lot of these issues and I know it's complex and I know it's difficult for parents to kind of grapple with perhaps what they feel society is telling them or, or you know, as you say, the popular press is telling them versus what the evidence might be or even the judgments that they might be able to make about their own child and whether they think that they have a healthy 
appropriate use of video games versus what might be a less than helpful use. So I'm going to put links to all of your blog posts on the topic, as well as some of the research papers that you've mentioned today in the show notes for people to investigate further if they're interested. Um, I'll also put a link to your book so that people can get hold of that if they're interested. Is there anywhere else that they might be able to find out more that you'd recommend? You know, there's one book, there's a researcher, Christopher Ferguson, who's a a longtime researcher in the realm of video play. He's written a book called Moral Combat. He's done research on one of the things we didn't talk about is the question of whether playing violent video games promotes violence. And Mm. um, he's done a lot of research, real world research, uh, which in my, my analysis of his research is it's the best studies done on that question. And he finds no evidence whatsoever that there's any, not even a correlation between playing a violent video games and real world violence. But he's written a book called Moral Combat, which is sort of about the moral panic that as a society we have about video play in general. And it's a well-reasoned book. He's not claiming that there aren't some people who are, just as I just said now, who are playing too much video games, not claiming that there are no problems at all here. Well, that's the case with everything, isn't it, really? (laughs) Yeah. But he's bringing common sense to bear on it. And so he's somebody whose work I would recommend looking into. Excellent. So I'll pop the details for that as well into the show notes. Peter, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it and all of your insights and and input. I I know it's giving me something to think about, although I try to be pretty reasonable about (laughs) my kids' use of video games. I try to look at it from the perspective of, you know, what are they actually getting out of this experience? What draws them to it? You know, what are they learning? And, And I have two sons and they use their screen time very differently because mm. it they're different kids and they've got different interests yeah. and I, I really like your ideas there about helping them to develop an internal locus of control around this stuff so that they learn to self-regulate as best they can they learn to manage that and that's given me a little bit more to think about in that regard so thank you again for your time I really appreciate it and hopefully anyone who's interested in finding out a little more will follow up some of the tips and links and resources that we've put in the show notes that you've recommended okay it's been nice talking with you I hope you enjoyed that interview with research professor Peter Gray from Boston College. It certainly got me thinking not only about video gaming and the role of play for kids, but also a bit about how I parent and what I restrict and what I don't and why. And I hope you found it equally thought-provoking. You will find links to Peter's blog, his book, and some of the research and other books and resources that he's recommended in the show notes for this episode. So pop over to potential.com.au forward slash podcast. There you'll also find a full transcript for the episode and Peter's guest profile with his bio and his tips for trustful parenting, which is a concept that I am trying to wholeheartedly embrace. And there's a bit more information in the show notes about that. Now, as I mentioned in the intro to today's episode, this is our last episode for season six. The team and I will be taking a break for a few short weeks, returning in mid-July with some very special interviews because July sees the world's positive psychology community descending upon Melbourne, close to where I live, for the International Positive Psychology Association's sixth 
World Congress on Positive Psychology. And this is a huge event. It's being held for the first time in Australia. It will be in July. There's over 1,500 delegates attending from over 40 countries with over 100 world-class scientific speakers. So essentially the world's best thinkers and experts in positive psychology are going to be there. They'll be discussing human behaviour, meaning and purpose, well-being, motivation, thriving and flourishing, all of the topics that we love to cover here on the podcast. I will be there representing the Potential Psychology podcast and I will be bringing you interviews over season seven of the podcast from some of those world-class experts speaking and attending the Congress. So I'm super excited about it. I'm really looking forward to the whole experience. It's going to be a full-on few days. It does go for four days in total, including pre- and post-workshops, but it's going to be an incredible opportunity to learn, and I'm really excited about being able to bring some of that to you. Now, if you can't wait that long and you are interested in attending the International Positive Psychology Association's World Congress in July. It is still open for registrations. The dates are the 18th to the 21st of July in Melbourne at the Exhibition Centre and you can find out more at www.ippaworldcongress.org. So that's I ppaworldcongress.org for registration and to find out more about the program and the speakers who will be there. If you do happen to be attending, let me know beforehand because I would love to catch up with some more members of the Potential Psychology community uh, over the few days. So drop me an email, that's ellenjackson at potential.com.au or send me a message via any of the socials and maybe we can find an opportunity to catch up. But if you're not there and I don't see you, I will be bringing all of that content to you in Season 7. Plus more, that's not just what we'll be covering over Season 7. I'm also speaking to Dr Celine Gelgetch about fears, phobias and obsessive compulsive disorder. We have James Garrett returning to the show to talk about deep change and a big project that he's been working on. I'm also going to be speaking to the author of a book, a true story, which I've just finished reading about being a young teacher, very young teacher. It's his ninth day in the job in country Victoria here in Australia. And he and his nine young primary school aides children were kidnapped and held for ransom. And he's written an amazing book about that experience and is going to be sharing not only a little about the, I suppose, traumas from that experience, but the road to recovery. So I'm really looking forward to that one too. So there's plenty happening in season seven. I'm looking forward to sharing that with you. Thanks as always for listening, for being here, for sharing all of our experts' wisdom and knowledge with me over the course of this season. Thanks as always to Andy and Jay, my fabulous team, for helping to bring this to you. And I look forward to seeing you in mid-July for the return of the Potential Psychologies podcast. In the meantime, go forth and thrive and flourish.